Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. It's a primal, wild freedom. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. Hmm, no. You know, we really lost a stride at the end there. Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. Welcome to the Rockstack Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also here despite being 3,000 miles away, is Mr. Marshall Crenshaw. Hey. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us today. To Nice to, to see you, Barney. Great to see you. We're going to talk today about your long and august career. We're also going to talk about your film about Tom Wilson, the man who produced not only Bob Dylan, but The Velvet Underground and The Mothers of Invention. And along the way, we'll talk a bit about Buddy Holly, I hope, and his friend Sonny Curtis, author of I Fought the Lure, and we'll bid a fond farewell to rhythm and blues great Lloyd Price. Marshall, you grew up in and around Detroit. Uh, what are your earliest musical memories of the Motor City? I want to mention the Soupy Sales Show, which was a TV show. That was a big influence on me. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but yeah, father of Hunt and Tony Sales. Oh, correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the, the last time I last time I did a search for Soupy Sales on YouTube, a couple of the first things that popped up were film clips of trumpeter Clifford Brown. Oh. The only known film footage of Clifford Brown are from his appearances on the Soupy Sales show. Wow. Soupy Sales was a you know a jazz guy. He was a hipster. He was a weed head. He had a, a couple of TV shows on Channel 7 when I was a kid. The one with the Clifford Brown clips, that was his nighttime show for grown-ups. And he always had, I think he had Charlie Parker on there at least once. Cool. But then the one that I grew up with and like worshipped was a, what they used to call a kiddie show in the daytime. The whole thing was like an inside joke when you would watch it because he didn't have a studio audience. He just played to his camera crew, but they were always laughing at some secret thing. And the show was just funny as hell and a lot of slapstick humor and puppets and stuff like that. But it was, Soupy was an absurdist, right? And the unspoken message from him to us kids was that the real world was an absurdity 
And I just, you know, I loved it. Anything that sent that message when I was a kid, I embraced it, whether it was Rocky and Bullwinkle or Mad Magazine. But rock and roll music, I mean, I grew up with that as the soundtrack to my family life and my childhood right from the start. I was born in 1953, a long time ago. My dad listened to rock and roll music, which was really peculiar at that time for somebody his age. But he grew up, he told me later on that he grew up in a black neighborhood, that his family lived in a black neighborhood till he was 12 years old in Flint, Michigan. All right. My dad always talked with kind of a watered down Southern accent. You know, his parents came up from the South in the 1920s. Okay. That's like a real endemic thing in Southeastern Michigan, people with Southern roots. Anyway, you know, just really glommed on to his musical taste and he had a guitar could play it mostly with his index finger, you know. When did you know you wanted to be a musician? Day one, kind of, honestly. Like I said, you know, Soupy Sales, Rocky and Bullwinkle, rock and roll music. That was like a, it was an, like an alternative kind of culture thing that I liked. And, and rock and roll music, uh, you know, just I was always really interested in it, really attracted to it. Everything that I picked up on as a kid, though, you know, it's come in at me through the filter of Detroit and Detroit TV and Detroit radio. I was near the city, but not in it, you know, couldn't get to it. Just a little kid that I was and all that, but it's just got its own very unique personality, as you guys know, I'm sure. But Of course. I was wondering, let's say moving a bit forward to, to your teens, were you going into Detroit to the Grandy Ballroom and places like that to see see that sort of emerging ballroom scene happening? I was just a couple of years too young to ever make it to the Grandy Ballroom. Mm-hmm. I was ne- I was never inside the Grandy Ballroom, but I did see all the bands eventually that played at the Grandy just here and there. And I saw the MC5 about six times. Right. I loved them. I saw the Stooges once, thank goodness. <laughs> I went to this big event at the Michigan State Fairgrounds. It was a two-day thing called the Rock and Roll Revival. And on the day that I was there, that was when I really saw all the Grandy Ballroom bands that I hadn't seen up till then. But like any sort of like legendary Detroit area artists that I ever saw live, they were all on what Mitch Ryder calls the white boy rock side of the equation. <laughs> what sort of Terry Knight and the Pack and people like that? Would it be Terry Knight who went on to manage Grand Funk Railroad and so on and so forth? Was that all sort of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had hits on the radio that I really liked. Funny that you should mention that because that, that rock and roll revival thing I'm talking about, Grand Funk Railroad made their world debut in the, in, in the middle of the afternoon at that show. And it did oh, really? not, not go very well at all. <laughs> the PA system died on them during the middle of their set, which I'm guessing might've been sabotage. <laughs> uh, it's just, it was a bad moment for them, but you know, the MC five that day, that was the last time I saw them. And it was just as, Back in the USA was about to come out. Right. Okay. And, okay. Uh, they'd already kind of gone out into the world and got their asses kicked, which <laughs> was a real tragic thing for a fan like me to see. You know, I really I, I took that to heart, what happened to them. But uh, anyway, they were <laughs> incredible that day, of course. And so were the Stooges. Like, it was a big mm. crowd, maybe 25,000 people at least 
and the Stooges, they could really command that space and really grab that audience of that size. You know, they, that was the only time I saw them. It was remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to you talk about these bands because in many ways, your first records, and I include like your very first single in this, were you weren't really part of sort of 70s kind of rock in that style. I can't imagine you were a Grand Funk Railroad fan. In the first of the pieces that we have on the homepage, there's a great quote in Cream magazine, which, of course, was was very associated with Detroit as well. You tell Iman Labbadi that uh, you talk (sighs) about cover bands you were in, including Danny and the Robots, and you say something which I think really points you know, points to, you know, what you were all about in the in the early 80s. I didn't want to get into a bar band situation covering Uriah Heep and Deep Purple. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get behind conveying that kind of sound. I couldn't get into it on any level. Early 70s music like post-Woodstock, I hated it. I hated every minute of it. So I, I really <laughs> dropped out from 68 to 78, and I didn't listen to anything modern. And you say, I feel that our music, so this is in 1982, is a denial of that whole 70s rock concept. And in a way, that's wow. how, I, how I remember that first single and the first album, <laughs> that you just kind of bypassed 70s rock in a way. Uh, that's coming on pretty strong. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I did drop out i followed rock music and rock and roll along the timeline my whole life right but then there was a rift with me by about 1971 72 and i did develop a hatred at that time for fm rock radio but as much as i hated it then that's how much i loved it in the 60s right i remember uh this kid sitting behind me in ninth grade algebra class one day and we're, we're talking and he says, are you into underground radio? <laughs> I said, what is that? I'd never heard of it. And he goes, you know, hippies, John Sinclair and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so I got home that day from school and turned it on WABX, one of the first FM rock stations in the world. And uh, once I turned it on, I just never turned it off. And it was like, <laughs> That station was like the voice of a particular community, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Detroit hippie community, which was unlike any other. It was its own, its own thing. And that station, it was its own thing in its own way. They played a lot of, you know, the rock stuff that everybody else played. But it was also really informed by the sensibility of John Sinclair. You know, there was a lot of jazz on it. It had like an ethos, you know. But then... Over time, like a mass audience moved into that scene and, you know, it got ruined. You know, like at some point, the station owners at FM rock stations around the country, they could, they smelled money. You know, the whole thing had started as this kind of fringe thing. Anyway, that's what happened with me. I remember this was a pivotal moment. I was riding around after school one day, high school, with this friend of mine, Ron Sussman the only guy in my crowd who had a, a car. We're listening to WABX, and uh, I'm hearing this you know, this long set. They always would play long sets with no interruption. In the middle of it, here's a, a version of Killin' Floor that I never heard before. You know the song, Killin' Floor? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I knew the song because, like, the electric flag had recorded it, mm-hmm. and, you know, on, on ABX they'd play the Holland Wolf version sometimes and different versions of it. But I'm hearing this 
version I never heard before, and I'm like, I, I think I, I recognize the voice of the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, right? <laughs> yeah. I bought their first album and listened to it. I, I, I didn't like permanently fall in love with it, but I, I bought it and I liked it. But anyhow, the guy gets to the end of the set and he's, you know, talking about what he's played. And, and he said, well, kids, I know uh, you thought that was killing floor that you heard, but it says here on the record label that it's something called the lemon song. <laughs> and instead of Willie Dixon's name in the songwriting credits, it's got the names of the four guys in Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and he, the guy, the DJ just proceeded then to go off on them. Oh, really? And talk about what a bunch of posers they were and all this other stuff. And I, and I just, <laughs> thought, yeah, yeah, fuck those guys, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of where. I mean, I like Led Zeppelin now. I like them better than I liked them back then. But I did. I I, I bailed out on. FM rock radio around that time, it just changed into something that I didn't want to deal with. And I I switched back to AM radio, the top 40 station, which then was Mm -hmm. CKLW, a legendary top 40 radio station, CKLW. And that fulfilled me just fine, you know, because they would play, sometimes they would play stuff that had started out on FM, but they might play like a better version of it. Like there was, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper by uh, Blue Oyster Oyster Cult. For example, I mean, the I loved that record, and the version that they played on CKLW was the one that I knew. But then at some point, I heard the FM version, and it's got this long instrumental thing in it. And I'm like, what's that? You know, because on the single, they just cut that right out and threw it in the trash can. You know. <laughs> anyway, CKL, CKLW was uh, really influential. I mean, I'll tell you this. this is a, just let me tell you this quick story about CKLW. It's a good story. I sat on a plane, airplane one time next to Shep Gordon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Funny thing. And I got to ask him this question that had been bothering me for a long time, or like in my mind for a long time. I said, when you guys went up to Toronto to do the Love It to Death album, did you deliberately go up there and work with a Canadian producer because you knew it would help you get onto CKLW? <laughs> and he just kind of went like that, you know. <laughs> Shut nodding. Uh, those guys that's are so very, funny. very savvy, strategic thinkers, that's for sure. That's very funny. Anyway. I mean, your love of, like, 60s pop maybe explains why, instead of kind of joining Uriah Heep, you were cast as John Lennon in Beatlemania. I mean, and that's the first anyone really would have known of you. How did that happen? I mean, you were in L.A. So tell us how it happened. Well, I left the Detroit area spring of 1977 just was looking at dead ends at every turn and I was 23 hadn't really done anything with my life at all much you know had to make a big pragmatic decision to get out of there but it happened spontaneously because I ran into this friend of mine from high school that I hadn't seen in a couple years and asked him where he'd been and he told me that he was living in LA that he had a, a steady work in a bar band about half the year and the band would go up to Alaska and play for six months out of the year. But then the rest of the time, he's in L.A. and yada, yada. He said when he got back, they, his band was going to have to audition a guitar player. And he jokingly said to me, well, why don't you come out and audition? And I said, when are you going back? 
So I went with them, you know, and that was it. I left the Detroit area. Didn't get the gig with his band, but the lead singer was nice enough to put me onto this other gig that I could have if I could get myself to Elko, Nevada. I could join the band that night. So I went to Elko, Nevada, joined this band, traveled around the West, all these little towns, Elko, Nevada, Pinedale, Wyoming, yada, yada. I was on that trip for like five months. But along the way, I saw a classified ad on the back of Rolling Stone, open casting call for Beatlemania. And I called the number. And that's how it happened. You know, I, I, I was, I was, I had gone to LA and was planning on moving there. But then the opportunity to join Beatlemania came up. And I also made a quick trip back to the Detroit area so my girlfriend and I could get married. I, soon after I left the Detroit area, I started to miss her really badly. And so I would call her all the time and we'd talk for hours. And I'd asked her at one point if we could get married. <laughs> and she said we could. So anyway, I went back to the Detroit area, got married. Then Beatlemania came along and I was either going to go back to L.A. to go to this music school called the Guitar Institute of Technology, yeah, which yeah. is now the, yes. now the Musicians Institute. But I got uh, I got accepted there and my parents were going to help me with that. Or I could go to New York for Beatlemania. And I just I went to New York and we fell in love with it right away. Both Ione and I did. Pretty soon I got in the West Coast cast of Beatlemania. I, was, I was, did that for just under two years and then quit. Because I knew then what I really wanted to do. I figured it out. It was a late stage career path choice for me to be like a rock front man and do everything myself. But anyway, I decided I was going to do that. That's what you asked me, right? Yeah, no, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you then, you, you settle in New York and you pretty much lived on the East Coast, I think, ever since. Ever since, you? yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting that your first single came out on this label, Shake Records. We actually got Alan Betrock on Rock's Back Pages, as well as Andy Schwartz. Now, they, they, they were keen supporters of you. I mean, yeah, so Alan Betrock founded New York Rocker, of course. Yes. And he had this little label, Shake. I don't know how many records he put out but he put out your first single something's gonna uh -huh. happen so how did how did you intersect with those guys when i left beatlemania i already had you know a couple songs i had like about 200 dollars worth of recording equipment a four track machine a reel to reel a mm -hmm. semi-pro machine but then no i just I, anyway I, I had a recording setup it was just really am getting ambitious and creating a body of work I started going around New York City with a bag of cassette tapes, just going door to door. I had a list of addresses in the music business that I'd gotten. These are the nine volt demos, right? Later, they later came out yeah, as a nine volt demo. You know demos, that yeah. album. Yeah. Okay, yeah. if you know that one, then I'm going to say that that's my real first album. But anyway, yeah. as soon as I started dropping those tapes off, right away, I got callbacks, opportunities, doors opened. You know, like the, the first time I went out on the street and Drop tapes off. Let's say that that was March of 1980. And then by April or May, I was in the studio, the record plant with Richard Goddard wow. and Robert Robert Gordon and Gary Talent and uh, Chris Spedding and Danny Gatt. I'm in Fast Company immediately. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then a little while after that, I dropped a tape off at Alan's office and he just called me up and said, let's make a record as soon as possible. I mean, Richard Goddard jumped first. He was the one that kind of, you could say, discovered me. 
because I left the tape at the with the doorman of his apartment building, and then a couple of days later, I got a call on my answering machine from Robert Gordon. Richard must have played the tape for Robert, but that was the first door that opened. And then Alan put out a single on Shake Records, and the way it was was a DJ on WNEW, Meg Griffin. She she loved Robert's version of Someday, Someway, and just played it to death. And then pretty soon my single comes out and she started playing it too. So here I am, this yo-yo who just is getting started in town, but I've got two songs on a mainstream FM rock station, which is pretty weird. Then my brother and I, my brother was in New York before I was, and, you know, we teamed up. And both he and I really loved the bar band life, and we wanted to get out and play for people. And as soon as we did, people loved us. We were in New York. It just kept snowballing and snowballing and building, and we just, like, really blew the city up. It was amazing. So by the time it's less than a year and a half after I started dropping my tapes off, I've got major label offers two of them in a little bidding war going on. Yes. Who was the other record company that wanted you, that didn't get you, Marshall? It was RCA. They offered more money, too. So, right. Uh, well, you, that was a lucky escape. That was a lucky escape. RCA was one of the worst-run record companies in the world. This went right well, through I the 80s. <laughs> uh, I mean, at the end of the 80s, I made the mistake of signing to RCA, and it was disastrous. And, <laughs> oh, you did? Di- yeah. and by all accounts, they have been disastrous for some years. So that was a yeah, lucky escape. <laughs> you know what? I get what you mean, but... If I had been like a strategic thinking person at that time, I might have looked in Billboard magazine and noticed that Warner Brothers didn't have anything in any chart right at that moment. Ah. But RCA did. They had hit singles. They had hit albums. They wanted me worse than Warner's did, honestly. I wanted to go with Warner's because I liked the people there. I liked Karen Berg, my A&R person. That's one of my favorite people I've ever known in my life. And uh, Steve Baker, and they just—they were more fun. I never met anybody at RCA other than mm-hmm. the woman that wanted to sign me. She was a really nice person. I met her boss. Didn't really click with him. That was it, you know. Like they never mm-hmm. took me out to nice restaurants like Warner Brothers did. <laughs> but uh, that's the really they, really, they, they didn't treat you right. But there were problems <laughs> with Warner Brothers right at that moment that I didn't even really know about. So. Uh, well, because it would seem a better home for, you know, a singer-songwriter, even though you weren't a kind of archetypal, you know, Burbank-style singer-songwriter. I mean, I always thought you you had this quite unique kind of persona in a way because you had one foot in sort of singer-songwriter music and the other really in kind of, I hesitate to use the word power pop, but in a more poppy sort of 60s pop, sensibility you know that that you straddled both of those well your wikipedia page says you don't like the term power yes so uh, exactly (laughs) beware (laughs) see that's other that's other people's frame of reference right Sure. Like, like i said before i grew up with the music from the time i was born yeah so that's that's home base for me now that especially now that i'm older the stuff that i go back to always is 56 through 63 that's that's it you know but i heard it all firsthand you know i heard all those records as new records the way they came into the world 
So, you know, people call it power pop, but I don't, you know, like I don't use this kind of lingo and jargon and shit, you know, to me, it's sure. just, ro it's rock and roll music. Yes. Anyhow, that's my answer to that. You know? Yeah. It's so much about melody, isn't it? And I mean, clearly, you know, you, you can hear some influences, but, but what you do with those influences, I think is very unique. I mean, I'm so fond of a lot of those songs from that period. The first three or four albums, you know, There She Goes Again, Cynical Girl, and when you talk about New York earlier, I love like uh, rocking around in, in NYC. It just uh -huh. sort of sums up that time. What's interesting to me is that you, I mean, and you've talked about this in, in other interviews, you work with a number of different producers. So you have very different sounds on different records, but but the kind of character, the melodic character of Marshall Crenshaw, I think is there pretty consistently through whether it's Steve Lillywhite producing you on Field Day or T-Bone Burnett on, on Downtown. I mean, I love songs on both of those, even though the sort of sound is very different. Well, you know, I put my Warner Brothers albums in two separate categories, honestly. The good news for me is that I now have the... I own the u.s copyrights to the recordings right oh, the well way done. you the way u.s copyright law works is different from internationally but anyway i have the u.s rights to all of them i'm working on a licensing deal for like 40th anniversary issues of the first and the second Great. but you know i'll tell you what i mean the on the first two i was just in a completely different world than i was on the other ones for me, there's like a cloud over three, four, and five, because the, the the thing, the way it went down with my first two records was just such a mess, right. partly caused by me. But I mean, it was just a big fucking mess. And just, by the end of Field Day, I just I was really heartbroken and just gutted, you know. And I actually requested a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the two head honchos at Warner Brothers, and I begged them to drop me from the label <laughs> and they wouldn't do it. Right. So uh, I had to make those other three after that. They were, I mean, I'm not, I put my heart into them always, but you know, I could really think clearly when I did my first two and then for the three, four and five, it was like a cloud over the whole thing. I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not knocking any of my records, any record I ever made, any album I ever made, there's somebody somewhere in the world that loves that album and will tell me that, you know, it helped get them through a dark time and all that stuff. I've heard it about all of my albums, but to me, the ones that are real definitive of me at my best are the first two. The others are just, I did the best I could with the situation I was in on the rest. Okay. Well, that's interesting to hear. I mean, uh, I love whenever you're on my mind on field day, yeah. but I also really love like a vague memory. I think on oh, downtown is, yeah, yeah. is one of the most beautiful like Beatles kind of ballads you ever wrote. It's really a gorgeous song. Well, that's how you hear it, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my vague memory of like a vague memory. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. To be fading like scenes from old dreams It's fading gradually Like a big memory A big memory You had a big hit here, I remember. I remember hearing this because I don't even I'm sure I'd ever heard your own version of uh, Favorite Waste of Time, which is one of your greatest songs. But that guy Owen Paul had a hit here, here in the UK. Oh. 
I think got to number three in 1986. So I guess I, that I know all about made it. You, made you a bit of a bit of spare change, Marshall. I hope it continues to make. Yeah, it does. Good. It, it's one of those. You know. Yeah, it gets played on the radio still in lots of different parts of the world. Good to think that there's some money coming in from those old songs. There is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. Good. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Buddy Holly because you were compared quite a lot to Buddy Holly when you first kind of burst on the scene in 82. And then you actually got to play Buddy Holly in La Bamba, the Taylor Hackford movie about uh, Richie Valens. Valens. I mean, just before we talk a little bit about Buddy, was he someone that you responded to when you were a kid in Michigan? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I I flipped out for him. Uh, You know, I'm just a little kid, but I just loved it. You know, I loved the way the record label looked with the big, silver star at the top and it was just like a really beautiful looking record label and i couldn't read what was on it but you know i, I was into record labels as a, as a kid my cousins who were like big sisters to me they had always bought records and anyway yeah i, I just loved his sound you know the joyfulness and his sound really grabbed me the guitar you know it just didn't sound like any other guitar i'd ever heard and then i saw buddy holly on the ed sullivan show when i was right. a little kid and I remember he played Peggy Sue on the show, and I hadn't heard that song yet. It wasn't on the radio yet, but, you know, I just looked at that guitar, a Fender Stratocaster. I didn't know what it was, but, you know, whenever I would see one of those on TV, it would just be like, there was a guy on the Lawrence Welk show called <laughs> called Buddy Merrill who played a Stratocaster, and I would just... Anyway, yeah, Buddy Holly was uh, really special to me as a child, and then when he was killed... I've told this story before, but my parents tried to hide it from me. Oh, sweet. Because, you know, they knew that it was going to upset me. And I didn't even really know what death was at that time. That's how I found out. I learned about death (laughs) as as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah. Yeah, Some people, it's their cat dying. With you, it's Buddy Holly dying. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened. And then, uh, you know, later on, when I'm starting to make my own music, I'm just embracing all this stuff, including the music from my childhood. I'd started to rediscover it in the 70s. And by the time I'm writing my own stuff, it's just like really, you know, it's got me, you know. So, yeah, the comparison to Buddy Holly was was very valid. You know, I really was taking influence inspiration from him well you can understand why critics and you did become i know you hate this term as well but you were a bit of a critic's darling i think that's okay that's okay the second piece we have by laura fissinger she talks she says she she used that phrase and you say what does it feel like to be a critic's darling i think you you ask her you know what on earth it, it means and you kind of object to it but i mean critics certainly liked the fact that they were reminded of Buddy Holly, the trio and and the guitar, and the fact that Buddy was such a a unique sort of figure, really in rock and roll, wasn't he? He he, he was a he was like one of the first singer songwriters and one of the first guys who sang and played and this incredible guitar. And you're not the first person I've heard to talk about just him on TV with that Stratocaster was was a sort of as defining as like the Beatles, you know, when they first were on Ed Sullivan. Well, he 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 invented them. You know, yeah. But you know, the other thing that's dawned on me about his stuff is that there's like a sense of intimacy from those records because they're just recorded in this 
isolated little space. There's just like sense of intimacy that you don't get from much other 50s rock. But yeah, you know, he wrote the stuff himself. It was all just real handcrafted. He was brilliant, wasn't he? Um, and then he yeah. wore spectacles as well. I mean, that's the other thing that's just kind of weirdly uncool and yet really cool about Buddy Holly. He didn't think come he was, over. Yeah. I, I think he was very cool, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. really do. And, you know, cool as a person too. Like over the years, I've yeah. read stuff about what he was like as a person. He was like... A really decent guy, wasn't he? He was a decent guy. He was conscious of the fact that rock and roll at that time was challenging racial taboos. Like he yeah. deliberately wanted to do that. I've heard that he was led astray by Little Richard to no small extent. They toured right. together, and he, Buddy came out of it a slightly different man than he went in. I think so. <laughs> yeah. See, Buddy Holly fans at that time, we, we loved that story in that book because it's like over now he's humanized in this, in this yeah. book, right? I remember talking to Gary Talent about it. <laughs> yeah, who knew, right? Yeah. <laughs> This might be a quite a good moment just to shoehorn in the new audio interview because it does relate to Buddy Holly. Mark, tell us a bit about this week's audio. Yes, John Tobler interviewing Sonny Curtis in 1990. I knew very little about Sonny Curtis until I digitised this audio. He's just a name who sort of slightly passed me by. And what a riveting life this guy led. I mean, coming from Texas, he was backing Buddy Holly before the crickets formed. He briefly joined the crickets just before Buddy died. Let's listen to the first clip. This is him talking about Buddy Holly. There's a track called The Real Buddy Holly Story. Mm -hmm. Now, you've seen the movie. Mm -hmm. Do you take exception to that movie? Because uh, various people say claim they do. I mean, Peggy Sue says there was never a Cindy Lou and all, all this kind of thing. I mean, what, what, what's the truth? You, you knew Holly pretty well. I knew Holly real well, and, uh, you know, they didn't consult any of us, uh, I think, which was probably a mistake. Uh, they, I think they sort of uh, made it up as they went. And um, But... I thought it was a fairly good rock and roll movie, but they just left so much out and added things that weren't necessarily true. Uh, um, there was uh, never a Cindy Lou, actually. And, uh, uh, they wrote the song when they wrote the song. It was Cindy Lou. It was the title. Yeah. Jerry Allison was going with Peggy Sue, and indeed married her after that. He said, "Let's change it from Cindy Lou to Peggy Sue." Mm. That was a story on that. But there were real errors, and you know. Uh, there are no mountains in Lubbock, Texas. Mr. and Mrs. Holly, uh, they portrayed them as uh, being kind of opposed to Buddy being in music business, which is the furthest thing from the truth. They not only uh, gave great support to Buddy, but all of us boys around Lubbock that were involved with him. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. Good stuff. He talks about the crickets carried on, and he joined the crickets. And this is in the early 60s. They came to England a lot. They toured here regularly on a Brian Epstein-promoted tour, for example. They did an album called In Style with the Crickets, which is the song which had I Fought the Law on. Do you, do you want to hear the clip about The Clash doing I Fought the Law? Yeah, well, I mean, I Fought the Law is, you know, obviously the most famous song Sonny ever wrote. and It is a classic. I'd say Walk Right Back with the Evelers is his other sort of really big oh, tune, beautiful. you know. Beautiful but anyway, let's, let's listen to this clip.
did you ever meet the Clash, by the way? Never did. Never no. did. Have they no. never expressed any interest in meeting you? Uh, not to me. <laughs> no. Next time I see one of them, I shall mention. I mean, you would, you would, you would be obviously quite interested in meeting them. Oh because... yeah, they're, I thought their record of "I Fought the Law" was really good. Uh, you know, it was a, a real good record. It had a lot of feel to it. You know. Because, the, the, you see, the thing is, meeting you, you don't seem like a rebellious kind of guy. Um, anything you? but. <laughs> I mean, you never fought the law and the law won. Oh, no. <laughs> no. But they did. Oh, they I lost. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely lost. <laughs> it's, that's very funny that I like that a lot it, he, he's great and they effectively became the, the Everly Brothers backing band for a, a good stretch as I said he wrote Walk Right Back for them which is a big hit then he's curious because he, he moves to Los Angeles and it, around the same time as that sort of the Oklahoma influx into Los Angeles the Leon Russells and so on and so forth so he ends up hanging around with those guys a great deal uh, with Delaney and Bonnie, sings backing vocals on Eric Clapton's first solo album, all kinds of strange stuff <laughs> it's like that. Bizarre, isn't it? It really is bizarre. Signs of Snuff Garrett, all the sort of it's very sort of wrecking crew territory sort of stuff that's going on. He gets into writing jingles, and he also writes the Mary Tyler Moore Show theme tune, which I think probably made him quite a lot of money, you know, good for him. He keeps rejoining the crickets. I mean, there's a later version with Albert Lee, who he just loves as a guitar player. They toured for five years supporting Waylon Jennings when they'd be affected the opening act. Then Waylon would come in and sing with them, doing Buddy Holly songs, and then they'd go off and Waylon would carry on with his act. As late as the year before this interview took place, so Keith Whiteley, Whitley Whiteley had this huge hit on one of his songs before dying of alcohol, basically. It's just, it's just as, I really enjoyed this interview. I mean, again, Tobler's great because he really does his research, so he had a, kind of a lot of the facts at his fingertips, which allows the conversation to really carry on. The one thing that stands out is he regrets that his solo career never really happened. You know, the, the, there is a one point in it when you can clearly tell that he'd have loved to have been something of a star himself. Didn't happen. But my God, he had a really fantastic career as a writer and as an enabler of other stuff. It's great. It's good stuff. I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Mark. He does. He comes across as such a nice, affable guy. It's very yeah. sweet. When <laughs> Tobler's saying, you know, yeah. strike me as the rebellious kind. I mean, uh, Marshall, <laughs> did you know much about, about Sonny Curtis in terms of his, you know, his role within the, the cricket story? Over time, I did learn. I mean, he was a great guitar player, too. If you know the Buddy Holly Nashville recordings before That'll Be the Day on Brunswick, you know, he was signed to Decca Records in Nashville yes. in 56. And Sonny Curtis is on some of those sessions. There's uh, one called Midnight Shift. I forget, but, you know, on some of them, Buddy would hand the Stratocaster over to Sonny Curtis and Sonny would play lead guitar and he could really play great. Yeah, kind of do Travis picking stuff. Buddy couldn't do that. You mentioned when they used to open for Waylon Jennings. I I saw one of those shows. Oh, really? Yeah, but I don't. You know, I don't. I don't remember the crickets real clearly. Right from that show, but I did see one of them, and I was on a TV show one time where the crickets backed me up. Oh, really? Yeah, Sonny Curtis wasn't in the band then. But sure. He might have been there, though, at the show, because it was just like a lot of luminaries, you know, on this thing with Chris Christopherson and Dwayne Eddy. And right. I met that's the first time I met all the members of the Holly family. 
Anyway, yeah, I'm a, I, I know about Sonny Curtis for sure. I still haven't met him, but he's still breathing, I think, right? Yeah, he is still breathing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's good. I'm, I love that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's return to the Marshall Crunchwell story and just sort of bring things up to date and talk about this Tom Wilson film. I mean, I know you've made a number of records since the 80s. Obviously, you know, you, well, you keep going as, as, as everybody does and more power to you. How did you get interested in Tom Wilson? I mean, where, where did that idea hatch? Well, I have this historian, music scholar part of my brain that works really well. And once in a while... I do a project, right, where I get to go down that road. Well, you wrote a book called Hollywood Rock. It's worth right. I was involved yeah. in that, yeah, and uh, you know other things here and there, little things. But with the Tom Wilson thing, my, a friend of mine, a guy named Irwin Chusid, yes, who's a musicologist and so forth, he put up a website called ProducerTomWilson.com, and he told me about it when he launched it. I just looked at the home page. And I just, it flipped me out right away. You know, I knew the name from records over the years, but didn't really give it much thought. But then I'm looking at the bullet points of his legacy, Tom Wilson's legacy. And I see that it, he discovered Cecil Taylor, discovered Sun Ra. He put out both their first records. He, Tom had, you know, he had his, his entree into the record business was to establish a record label, a really forward thinking kind of genius record label called Transition Records. That was when he was just out of Harvard. Anyway, Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra. Then he's Bob Dylan's producer from Masters of War to like a Rolling Stone. You know, think about that. And then after that, Simon and Garfunkel, he kind of like invents them almost. And and then the Velvet Underground, who wouldn't I've gotten through the door without him and same with Zappa. And I'm like, I'm looking at this list. It's a list of some of the main provocateurs in popular music of my lifetime. Right. But they're all connected by, you know, this one guy. So like, okay, what was his agenda? And in his biography, what little bit there was about his biography on Irwin's homepage. I'm like, how on earth did this guy get passed over by history? There's like all these little slices of his legacy you can take. If, if you just look at what he did with Transition Records, you could look at that and say, oh, if he'd stopped there, he would have made history. <laughs> or you can jump forward to the day when he did the electric overdubs on Sounds of Silence in the morning and then produced like a Rolling Stone later the same day. You could look at that. Is that and go, true? Oh. The same day? Yeah. If, wow. he'd, if he'd just done that, he would have made history. And then you could sure. go forward a little bit more and say, oh, he – signed the Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa when nobody else was going to. Oh, if he'd just done that. You know what I mean? Like over mm -hmm. and over again, this guy, this guy, he was a visionary. It's fascinating. And, yeah. I love this idea of just graduating from Harvard and going, right, I'm going to sign Sun Ra. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. First record label, you just set one up. And you're like, all right, here we go. It's just, it's fascinating. He's story. a game changing figure in popular music. How easy do you think it was for a six foot four African American guy from Waco, Texas right. to kind of make his way in the record industry in New York? He was, I think, the first black producer, or at least he said he was the first black producer at Columbia Records. He, uh, yeah, he was. And uh, he wasn't the first ever black record producer that made like historic records with white artists, but I mean, he was the first one at Columbia Records. He just. He has his own place in history. There's a big hole 
in history where his story is supposed to be. But right. anyway, how easy it was, I mean, it's about as easy as you might be able to imagine. Not easy, but, you know, he just was, he was a giant is what he was. I didn't know, I mean, I knew him like you as a name. Obviously, you kind of you see this name on your Velvet Underground records and your Mothers of Invention records and your Dylan records. And you think, and then you find out he was a black guy and you think, you know, this is this is a story that needs to be told. And I started to learn a little bit more when we added, I don't think Tom did very many interviews. We have one of the only ones on Rock's Back Pages. And I remember when we added this, when Michael Watts of Melody Maker came on board and he happened to interview Tom when he came to London in, I don't know whether it was late 75 or early 76, because it's Melody Maker dated 31st January 76. And he sits down with... Tom and you know gets a lot of really interesting facts out of the guy that I wouldn't have known I'm not sure anyone would have known had Michael not talked to him yeah really extreme that's a good inter- that's a really good interview because it's real comprehensive too but the yes. thing about him is uh, you know I have a I have several audio interviews with him now and I have film of oh, him oh great where did you find them uh, just here and there you know just digging I've been I've been doing research on this thing since 19 19- I'm sorry. Uh, 19, nine, nine, yes, 18, 1894. Yeah. It must feel like it. Yeah, for a long time. A long time. Yeah. Well, you were talking about it when I met you eight years ago, I think. So, so yeah. it's, it's certainly been eight years already. I think what's really extraordinary is that actually when you read his discography, I might just glance at the shortened version of it they have on Wikipedia, and Producing the Velvet Underground, producing White Light, White Heat of all the albums, suddenly makes a great deal of sense. You know, I mean, if you think he yeah. produced Bob Dylan, well, there is a, there's a pretty big jump from Highway 61 to the Velvet Underground. But from Sun Ra to Velvet Underground is a much straighter line in a yeah. curious kind of way. You know, yeah. so, so suddenly that, that makes sense. White Light, White Heat makes, makes sense in his discography, which, which wouldn't have before. There are all these like connectivities in mm-hmm. his legacy for sure. And one on transition, the, like the last album that he bankrolled on transition was one that he didn't have the money to put out, and he, he had to sell this tape along with all his other tapes. But it was an album called Odetta Sings Ballads and Blues, mm-hmm. which is an album that Bob Dylan, for one, and Janis Joplin and other people, they point to that album as the one that just like transformed them. Right. You know, so that's another one that he caused to exist that went on to influence somebody that he would work with later on, like Zappa. Frank Zappa, he's the, he's the only one out of all the A-list rock stars that Wilson worked with. Zappa is the only one who was already a Tom Wilson fan. Right. When they crossed paths and he, mm-hmm. you know, was, he knew all about him and, one of Zappa's favorite albums in high school was Jazz Advance, you know, the Cecil right. Taylor album on, on Transition. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Well, as far as like the depth and the range of Wilson's discography, like, you know, what other record producer could produce three Cecil Taylor albums and three Connie Francis albums? <laughs> Sorry, that's brilliant. <laughs> in Matrix, no? did you talk to many people who had been produced by him? Yeah, like Dylan, for example. But, but, the reason I ask is, was there any sort of... Did people talk about his methods, about what he's like as someone being produced by him? How was he with the artists in the room? Yeah, a lot. I, I mean, I have like 60 interviews. 
mm-hmm. with with more still to come. But you know, like two thirds of them, I did myself and asked the questions. So I'm just like very, very deep into the story. I don't want to sit here and give the whole movie away, but sure. <laughs> it's gonna bl- it's, it's, look. It's gonna really be a mind blower. I promise you. I'm so looking to forward it. to it. So yeah, surely Dylan has to speak to you about Tom Wilson. I mean, in this I, some uh, piece I read where Dylan kind of says, "Well, yeah, I mean, Tom really had some idea of of like electric folk that." we wouldn't have got to without it was it was tom's idea really and in the watts piece i think tom says that he sidled up to albert grossman dylan's manager and said if you put some background to this you might have a white ray charles with a message but then he says it was another year until dylan agreed to electric backing so i mean that's all true it is, yeah. So this is the you can verify this stuff without. Well, Wilson. Yeah, yeah, well it's. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated, right? But but I can say I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. I, I listened to the, all the sessions they did together, and I also listened to tapes from a session that was an experimental session that Wilson did, where he overdubbed electric instruments onto Bob's version of House of the Rising Sun as a yeah. thing to build his case to Albert Grossman and Bob Dylan. You know, and, you know, it wasn't like he told Dylan, OK, well, look, I got these guitar players going. This, Of course, it wasn't like that. You know, it was Bob when Bob wanted to do it and was ready to do it. He did. But Tom started pushing the idea right, right when they first met. He knew that he could see that Dylan had star quality and he thought that he had too much star quality just to be confined to the folk world. You know, but it took a while for a lot of things. I mean, there was just changes in the world that happened that made everything fall into place. But yeah, Tom was pushing that all along. The thing about Tom's interviews, whether it's 64 or 68 or 75 or whatever it is, he always keeps his story straight. You know, they, they never change. He spoke with integrity mm-hmm. about whatever he was talking about. And he was not like a passive bystander in his artistic relationship with Bob Dylan. He was never like that. Definitely not. And he doesn't sound like someone who kind of wanted to put people's records out to hitch himself onto other people's talent. He sounds like someone who really had vision and creativity of his own to bring to the whole process, which is great. And to fight for the mothers of invention (laughs) in 1965 really took some balls. I mean, there's a great Zappa quote about they're running through who are the brain police in the studio in uh, in LA and he Zappa can see or hear Tom on the phone to MGM kind of pleading their yeah. case you've got to sign this band and who are the brain police playing playing along in the background I mean you know they were probably the least commercial proposition you could have imagined at that time yeah but Tom knew I mean he was a provocateur you know and he understood the power at that time of popular music to to drive social change there wasn't anything that any of those rock groups could have thrown at him that he hadn't like heard of already or thought of already you know he'd been in the modern jazz world in the late 50s and worked with everybody you know john coltrane and you name it you know so i mean he got what that music Mm. with the potential of it was when are we going to see the movie marshall that has to, that's the question that's, that's begging. When are we? Yeah. Gonna, when is it going to finish? Well, it's really hard. You know, maybe somebody besides me could have got it done faster than I can. But I want to say late part of next year. I mean, I, I lost about six months last year, of course, 
2020, right? That was a blank mm. for a long time. But we got back on track by about springtime or summertime. And I, I just said, I'm working with really great people now. And I'm trying to stay out of their way unless they ask me about something. But anyway, I, I'm just I'm doing the best. I mean, I, my, <laughs> my brother asked me that recently. And I said, you know, it's in a great place right now, but it could still fail. It could still just fall into the ditch. But uh, late next year, I hope. Well, we really uh, hope super. that you complete it. it yeah. It, it's going to yeah. be a fascinating film. Definitely. So will you just finish it for us? <laughs> um, <laughs> we really want to see it. We really want to see it. So do I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I'll try to do that. Well, you know, thanks for talking to us about everything about your own your own work and about Tom Wilson. I hope you'll join us to talk just a little bit about Lloyd Price, who died just the other day. Um, we're running a couple of pieces, including a, a great piece that Wayne Robbins actually sent us not long ago. He went up in 2013. He went up to visit Lloyd Price, who was already 80 at this point in Westchester County, where uh, Lloyd had moved to. And it's really a fascinating uh, little encounter with Lloyd. Do, do you remember Lordy Miss Claudie and Staggerly, et cetera, when they came out, Marshall? Not Lordy Miss Claudie. I was only one year old when that came out. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, yeah, all the, all the ones on ABC Paramount. I know, yeah. I know, I know yeah. all those, you know, for sure. Yeah. They're on American Bandstand and all that stuff. I watch it every day. Uh, yeah. Sure. I find them absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I, I've loved him for years because I'm a big New Orleans R&B fan. But reading about him subsequent to his death, I, I realised what a smart guy he was. He, yeah. got con- he got control of his publishing in a way that artists never did in those days. He had obviously had a he, – he first signed Specialty and did Lordy Miss Claudie, and then he got drafted into the army. Uh, but the thing is, in one of these interviews, it's pointed out that he says that he he ended up in the legal department of the army and got started talking to lawyers, and they started talking about publishing and where the money was in the music business. So yeah. it's like a big light bulb went on. He had obviously been ripped off by specialty because that's what specialty did to all their their artists, you know. So he came back, set up his own label. That didn't quite work. But then signed basically a deal for his label with ABC, and that's when the, the big singles happened. He was getting the publishing off that. It's, it's unheard yeah. of for any artist, let alone a black artist, to have that yeah. sort of degree of control at that time. And he lived a long life. He did all kinds of interesting things. He bought Birdland and renamed it at the New York Club. He must have bought that off Mo Levy because Mo Levy was well, the owner well, of Well, so, I mean, there is there's a, the dark side of yeah. that story, of course, is that, you know, Harold Logan, who he's in business with, is, is shot dead in yeah. the office above. Wow. They renamed it The Turntable. And it was unsold, but I think the supposition is that Italian mobsters did not care for black folks having any kind of, you know, any success or power on like 52nd Street. Yeah. No one really knows why he was shot, but apparently a Lloyd Price record was playing when the police entered the office and, and, and found uh-huh. Kogan dead. Barney, you, you remember when we met 
David Johansson about 20 years ago. And was that the club where he was watching Howard Tate sing? Was he, I th- yeah, because it was that yeah, club, there was wasn't a, there it? was a connection there. I think that Harold yeah. Lowe, you know what? I'd have to check my facts here, but there is a relationship because Howard Tate, there's definitely a kind of mob yeah. sort of shadow over all of this. But what, 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 what you talk about how smart Lloyd Price was, mm-hmm. he got the hell out of yeah. there. He sold the turntable and he, and he got moved up to Westchester County, and he, you know, he thought, I'm gonna. I, I think I'm gonna try and stay alive here. Yeah. And he really was a very smart businessman. Yeah. You know, he went into real estate. He went into uh, uh, soul food and stuff. I love yeah. reading his interviews because he comes over as such a nice man as well. You know, he, he really sort of, you know, doesn't take himself too seriously. Can laugh at the world. You know, he's came over as a good guy. I think so. You know, I mean, I, I mean, so the, the first of the pieces is by Bill Miller, the great mm-hmm. Bill Miller, one of the best writers on, on rock and roll and R&B. And, and he just says, Lloyd Price is written in 81, occupies a relatively anonymous position in the rock and roll pantheon. Rock and roll enthusiasts now attribute greater significance to other New Orleans pioneers and seldom eulogize the singer whose million-selling compositions were revived, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I think that's true in a way. I mean, you know, he, he as an artist, his work really has been overshadowed by the obvious names. I mean, the great irony is he recommended Little Richard to Art Roop of Specialty. He yes. comes out of the army and Art Roop is basically, I've got Little Richard now, thanks. I mean, it's, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, people. I mean, you know, I, I don't think he was certainly a performer or singer of the stature of someone like Little Richard. But these are terrific records. I mean, yeah. and Lordy Miss Claudie is essentially like a. It's like a Fats Domino record. I mean, Fats is playing on it. Yeah, I, I was reminded. Right. I was reminded. Dave right. Bartholomew produced it, and so on and so forth. It is effectively a Fats Domino record. But um, no, he, I, I actually, he, I think he wrote some fabulous songs, and I like to think that he made a decent amount of money in the way that R and B artists very rarely did back in the day. Yeah, but probably more of it out of real estate and soul food, I think, than, <laughs> than, than out of song copyrights. While we're talking about dead people, Jim Steinman died last week or a week before last, and they've been wheeling out people to kind of pay tribute on various like obituary shows on the radio, and they wheel out Meatloaf, who's saying very nice things about Jim Steinman. Our site is full of interviews where the interviewer is told, don't mention Jim Steinman to Meatloaf when you talk to him, because Jim Steinman ripped Meatloaf off completely. He got hardly anything for those huge hits. It was absolutely scandalous. It's absolutely extraordinary. So there was Meatloaf being kind about the guy who basically just didn't pay him a penny for those those big big records. Wow. Sorry, apropos of nothing whatsoever. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it, this is reminding me because when uh, Marshall and I met about eight years ago, I was interviewing him for my book about Woodstock and Bearsville. And, of course, you know, what I never knew when Bat Out of Hell came out was that it was – Pretty much all of it was made in this tiny little studio that Todd Rundgren had built up in Lake Hill. I mean, you probably know about this, Marshall. Um, 
I think one of your interviews, you 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 talk about having just moved up there, and you say you haven't seen Todd Rundgren yet, but you you keep spotting Ed Sanders and Garth Hudson in the health food store. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to know Rick Danko a little bit. I was on a couple of shows with him at the Bearsville Theater. You know, I was around those guys some. I played the Ramble one time. I used to go to the Midnight Ramble with my son whenever, whenever we wanted, we could go. Did you ever go up to Utopia Sound? Did you ever go up to Todd's studio? You must no, have driven no. I was only I've I've only been in the same room as Todd Rundgren once, and that was in the dressing room at the Bearsville Theater. I never went to the studio, but sometimes I would run into people I knew who were doing albums with him. Like I remember going to buy a newspaper one Sunday morning and running into a guy named Mo Berg from a band called Pursuit of Happiness. Happiness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we were friendly with each other and I said, Oh, what, what's up? What are you doing here? And he was telling me about working with Todd. You know, he said that all day long, Todd had this little bag of mushrooms and he would just kind of <laughs> microdose himself all day long. You know, and I'm like, wow, this is, and this is a pretty long while ago, you know, yeah, I remember fantastic. those Pursuit of Happiness records and talking to uh, to Mo for a Mojo piece uh, on Todd. And he just, I remember he said, just Todd, ha- basically, I didn't know about the mushrooms. He didn't tell me about the mushrooms. But <laughs> he had that experience that many had with Todd. It was just, you'd be playing your heart out and you'd look through into the control booth and Rungren would just have his feet up on the mixing desk reading some, like, studio technology magazine and he just go yeah yeah that's fine that's fine next <laughs> i mean <laughs> very very demeaning anyway bad out of hell of course was like a massive cash cow for glad you mentioned steinman i've never been a fan of that record no. it just sounds strange it's an absurd record to well me, the whole bizarrely I, I, I kind of grew up with it a little bit <laughs> i don't know why it's it was, one of jasper's was, dark secrets like queens I, I don't know that, there was just yeah. like it was just a cd that was in my parents house and like there was something about the whole like operatic theater yeah, yeah. Of it that i guess captured my like you know 10 year old imagination yes i think you have to be 10 years old really. i have a, therefore i have to admit guilty secret i have a soft spot for it because of that kind of nostalgic uh, you know listening to it as a kid That's and just right. thinking wow there's so much happening in this Obviously, now you look back and it's like it's all a bit over the top, but sure, it's fun. Hey, you know what? If you like it, you like it. I, I, the yeah. whole thing about guilty pleasures—I don't buy that at all. If you, sure, you don't. You don't have to yeah, explain yeah, no. to anybody why you like what you like. <laughs> Quite. I so. agree. I think one of the nice things about getting older is you just give less of a shit whether people think you're uncool for liking. Abba, that is for good. Example. And that reminds me, you did a version of Knowing Me, Knowing You on your on that live album. And amazing. You know, for that alone, I love you. You know, I just think this <laughs> I just that wow. that takes some balls. It's such a great song. Is it not? It is. Yeah, it really is. Do you still play Knowing Me, Knowing You? No, that was, you know, just a little sort of thing. But no, it's a great rock song, a great song, yeah. period. Yeah. I, I hate a lot of their songs, honestly, but. There are about six or seven that I just really love, and that's one of them. And the other cool thing about it is that when we would play it, people would be like, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it would shock yeah. people, you know, but it's just, it worked, you know. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I like that. 
Cool. Marshall, thank yeah, you so much stuff. for talking about all of this. It's been really fascinating listening to you and all these different things that make up your musical life. Will you please stick around because we're going to just go through some of the highlights in the Rocks Back Pages library and just sort of jump in if there's anything that kind of prompts some thought or memory in you. Marco. Yes, starting off in Melody Baker, 1975, Carly Simon had been interviewed by Jacoba Atlas. I always like reading Carly Simon interviews because she's a really bright woman. You know, she's got a lot of things to say. She says, before I became a commercial artist, I was writing with a great deal more honesty and maybe more originality. Left to my own devices, I'd probably be a little too highbrow because I think of myself as being more arty than I really am. I love that. I think of myself as being more arty than I really am. That's great. 1977 record mirror, Robin Katz in Lamont Dozier. Interesting guy. I had this terrible week, week of writing songs with Lamont in Los Angeles back in 1988. And it was one of the most ghastly experiences of my life. We really didn't like each other at all. <laughs> so this is why, why, why we're not talking about Pringle, Dozier and Pringle. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing came out of it. But he's oh. good in this interview. He says, all those years I thought Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye had it going for them so easily. I always thought it was the songwriters who did the creative work. This is in the light of him actually becoming an artist in his own right. <laughs> he says, I used to break up with girls just to feel miserable enough to write a sad song about them. <laughs> he did that. His original version of Going Back to My Roots is, is oh, it's fantastic. spectacular, well, um, isn't it? He made a couple of really fantastic albums, Peddling Music on a Side. It's really great. It's not on Spotify, but I believe you can find it on YouTube, the complete album. It's a great record. And that's got going back to my roots on it. And the song Peddling Music on a Side, which is just fantastic. Moving on a year later, Rolling Stone, Susan Shapiro reviewing Ian Deary and Blockhead's New Boots and Panties. She sort of hates this record and really rather likes it. She says Ian Deary has fashioned New Boots and Panties out of the more vile and pernicious aspects of his social persona. He's the midnight rambler in all his smarmy, unsexy glory. Women are his personal dartboards, and he aims for the aorta with a good deal of relish. <laughs> <laughs> then she says, New Boots and Panties punks out in a laughingly distasteful way, as much as it rests on a cushion of warmth, feigning an indifference. Whatever Ian Deary chooses to feel, his expression of it is remarkable and intriguing. Whatever you choose to make of his statements, you won't be left untouched. So it's a, it's a really interesting, long and ambivalent mm. review of that album. It's always interesting, I think, when you hear like American responses to music that's so kind of English. Or obviously, it's American influences in Ian during the Blockheads, but his his sort of his writing, his lyrics w were so centered in kind of British English culture and yes. his delivery. Yeah, I mean, I, did you ever hear New Boots and Panties, Marshall? Yeah, I have. It's, it's over there on the shelf somewhere. Did it make sense to you? Did it make sense to you when it came out? I mean, did it? Did yeah. it's something so <laughs> archetypally English? That's true, but you know, there's a lot of uh, English culture that gets through over here. You know that. I mean, a lot of Anglophiles too in my sure. own peer group. And no, I had that album. You know, and I have the. 12 inch 
single of Reasons to be Cheerful. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Yeah, yeah. I love Reasons to be Cheerful is just such a fun song. I also love the genius of calling it part three when there's no one and no two. <laughs> yes. so, yeah. 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 And he had that Perfect. guy, uh, Chaz Jankel. With yeah, him. Was sure. Very Brilliant talented. musician. Uh, that's yeah. all I know, though. I, yeah. I only know the early stuff. Yeah, yeah. Was, is there more after that? Yeah, up until his death. Yeah, there's plenty yeah, of stuff. Yeah, odds and ends, but it's really that album's the best one. Chaz Jankel's an interesting guy. He wrote a song, released it himself, called I Know Corrida, which Quincy Jones covered. Like, yeah, a massive yeah, yeah. worldwide hit, which meant I know suddenly Chaz had all this money and he built a recording studio and all kinds of stuff like that. Chaz is a nice guy. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. One, two, three. Summer Buddy Holly, the working folly, good golly Miss Molly, and boats. Hammersmith Pally, the Bolshoi Bally, jump back in the alley, add nanny goats. 18 wheelers, camels, Dominica camels, all other mammals plus equal boats. 1985, Elliot Weekly, Roy Traken interviewing the replacement. This is Paul Westerberg, you know. We began getting calls every day from record companies wanting to know where in bumfuck Ohio we'd be playing that night so they could send their A&R guys recounts the dishevelled Westerberg mixing himself a vodka and orange with a Jim Beam chaser. This is a, this is a second <laughs> re- reference in a week to Bumfuck, isn't it? No, Bumfuck moves around. Yeah, it, it's, it does. One week it's in Iowa in one piece, <laughs> and, then, and this time it's in Ohio. Uh, this is great. This is certainly Did the band... Did you ever play with- there, Mike? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I play all of them. Yeah. It says certainly the band won't be able to record gems like Gary's Got a Boner on a major label. The rat jobbers, <laughs> the rat jobbers in K-Tells of this world wouldn't allow it. No, it can't be that juvenile, nods Westerberg. Maybe something more sophisticated like Juan has got an erection. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice interview with Mel and Kim on by Stuart Bailey for Record Mirror in '87. I haven't really got a quote from it, but it's it's just it's charming stuff. And there's also a really interesting piece when Sean Ryder was outed by the News of the World as having been a rent boy. He says, "I've said in the press hundreds of times that they can't hurt me because I'm not a pervert, and they've tried to do this job on me." So there we go. As, as usual, the air goes out of the interviews when you hit the 80s and 90s. So that's my lot. <laughs> actually, Mark, I actually made that Sean Ryder quote, the Paul quote for the homepage this week. Excellent. Um, and partly because I saw some story in the papers, an interview, I was an interview in The Guardian with, with Sean, and, and the Paul quote there was something like, Heroin never made any difference to, to my health or, you know, my appearance. Yeah. And you're like, you're looking at Sean Wright and you're like, mate, you look about 82 years old. <laughs> you, you can't seriously claim that the heroin didn't physically damage you. I saw that. <laughs> Did you I, see you know, I, read the, I read The Guardian, yeah. Okay. And, uh, I, mean, I didn't get very far, though, because, like, I, I'm reading and he, and he said what you just quoted and – so, see, I lost all my teeth from crystal meth, but I'm fine. You know? <laughs> oh, so it's the crystal meth. Heroin was, was good for him. Crystal meth was yeah. the thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've never tried heroin. I mean, I hear it's really great, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That very first piece in Cream, Iman Lababedi, refers to your, uh, your, your lack of drug use. He makes a point of mentioning. Well, yeah. Well, he, he's, you know. How would he know? I mean, you know. Well, because I think you tell him. I think you sort of say <laughs> oh, okay, words, okay. words to the effect of, you know, uh, drugs are overrated or, you know. Drugs are a myth, you drugs say. Drugs are a myth. There you go. I, I, could, I don't think I said Sean Ryder. I don't think I said drugs are a myth. I, I, I can't imagine that I would have said that. No. Well, 
Anyway, uh, this is the problem with rocks back pages. Is that you know what you say in 1982 is written in stone in our life. <laughs> <laughs> Jasper, have you got any treats in store for us? Just a couple of ones to mention quickly. The first of which I really want to mention, which is longish piece by James Maycock in the Guardian about Watt Stacks, oh. the festival in Watts, Los Angeles. And he writes about that festival and the backdrop that it was obviously connected to the Watts riots in 1965. And the, the Watts Stacks Festival 72 commemorated the seventh anniversary. And he's writing about that and talks to Al Bell. And it's just a great article exploring that whole situation of the black power movement and everything and what i found fascinating was amazingly says al bell we were able to cut a deal with the city we had only black police officers and not one of them had a gun there were no riots no fights according to bell in spite of a hundred and twelve thousand strong audience and a significant gang presence you know and i think i think that shows you what's possible when people do the right thing in that kind of scenario. There's also a really nice anecdote of sporting a huge brown flop hat and a psychedelic print cape. Hayes mounted the stage, Isaac Hayes. Jesse Jackson, standing next to him, yelled, Do we want to see Isaac Hayes? Brothers and sisters, we are about to bring forth a bad, bad... On the point of blurting out the Oedipal expletive, Jackson gushed, I'm a preacher, I can't say it. <laughs> I just think it's fabulous. Have you, have you seen um, Wattstacks, the movie? Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty terrible. I mean, this is stuff I love. I mean, the staple singers are trying to sing. There's like people standing on the stage with them. It's just it's chaos and the sound is dreadful. And I like the record though. We, my my mate Tim Hall at school bought the Watt Stacks double album. It was definitely part of my kind of soul education. Okay. And it, it, there were some pretty yeah. pretty good cuts. I was listening to it earlier. And and I think the crucial thing about that whole thing was, and this is what, what the article kind of concludes on, the people of Watt sent a message to the world. Here we are, hear what it's about, hear what our struggle is about. Mm-hmm. And I think it can't be overstated how important that festival was and is as a testament to black creativity, music, black power, I guess. Didn't Isaac arrive, I mean, not only with all these amazing gold chains and stuff. I mean, he was a country boy from Tennessee, which I always think is kind of funny. That he became this this sort of kind of icon of black exploitation, and, and he arrives at what's, I think, in this kind of great big limousine, the, the, the audience parts, and this enormous car drives towards the stage and Isaac gets out. Wearing a cape. What a, brilliant. Wearing a cape. Fantastic stuff. Who's a black private dick? It's a sex machine to all the chicks. right. Another thing is Björk's Vulnikura reviewed by Francis Morgan in The Wire, and it's just a lovely bit of writing. Björk is deeply invested in music as meticulous artifice, from its hyper-detailed studio construction to its theatrical performance. Alongside this performance is another, the performance of spontaneity and a kind of directness that cuts through the crystalline production, connecting with the listener via that fern-like curl of a voice and the urgency of the lines she writes for it, whether creaking and intimate or unleashed as if she can no longer hold back primal joy or anger. I just think Francis Morgan writes really nicely, and I think that's a great bit of album reviewing. Gets Björk in one. I, I totally agree. I, I think it is that... That mixture, the incredible emotion of her singing and the sort of artifice and elaborate electronica of most of her music. I think it's uh, just such a beguiling mix. Yeah, for um, sure, for sure. Are you a Björk fan, Marshall? 
I'm not like deep into it, but I know she's great. You know, I've yeah. Heard, yeah, I've heard a bit of it. You know, I'm open to it. I think she's one of the one of the towering figures, really. I have to say, yeah, the last yeah, yeah. sort of twenty years, I've seen her play a couple of times, and on every level, it's a pretty. A pretty extraordinary experience. Very lastly, one that you sent me. Yes, this was especially for you. Yes, Charles Aznavour, the great French singer. And it's a top 10 of the best of his songs. Alan Clayson in The Guardian uh, a couple of years ago, 2018, three years ago. And one of them is La Boheme, which I think is just still such a fabulously emotional song. Brilliant. And he writes, in the wake of the Canny album, His Love Songs in English, Aznavour's English-speaking following snowballed. Among them, and this is why I picked this bit, was Bob Dylan, who saw him at New York's Carnegie Hall and said, he just blew my brains out. Wow. Among the highlights of the show was La Boheme, a salam to the Parisian neighbourhood Montmartre, and an Aznavour signature tune. At one of his final British performances, he enhanced it with the use of just one prop, a white rag, which was tossed into the crowd. And I think it just gets to the heart of, you know, what a classy performer Aznavour was. And I think, I don't know, Bob Dylan, blew my brains out always makes me think of like something violent uh, rather than blew my mind. I just thought it was a funny expression. Yeah, just wanted to When was that. that Carnegie Hall show, Jasper? Do you know? I don't, I'm afraid. Would this have been like early in Dylan's kind of musical education. I'm guessing so. Yeah. I guess. I mean, this mentioned the, the piece is mentioning the 1965 album, his love songs in English. So okay. that, I guess it would have been around that time. Brilliant. Well, fantastic. Can't get enough as I think we've come to the end of the episode. So thanks, everyone, and particularly you, Marshall, for joining us today. It behooves me to ask Mark to sort of talk us out with the, the last clip from the Sonny Curtis audience, which is really fascinating. About Bobby Fuller, as in I Fought the Law, um, and about his death. One of great, Rock's great unsolved mysteries. Music business is a tough business, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that story is so awful. The poor kid. Yeah. Sure. Sure. You know quite a lot about the sort of more arcane mysteries. Do you know any other theories of Bobby Fuller's demise? I don't. You know, there was Miriam Lina. Yeah. She's a really good rock writer, and uh, she wrote a biography of him, and it was years and years and years in the works. And I really thought she was going to crack it and reveal, you know, the definitive take on it in her book but she did she didn't she just gave like some of the theories and they're all like really disparate and it's crazy though you know the the, anyway a suicide right that's what the police said Uh, and then you read about what Mm -hmm. really happened to him it's like it's it's like a cruel joke yeah absolutely that they they wrote it up like that it's like something out of james elroy isn't it bobby fuller yeah most certainly it is it's but except it's real and it really happened to a per like this kid you know from texas i don't mean Mm. i don't you know yeah awful yeah pretty pretty bad well listen you know thanks again so much for joining us we will be back in two weeks we're going to sign off now and say goodbye thanks for listening thanks thank you very much fellas it's great great having you thanks marshall good with the tom wilson film we're holding you to that yeah check back in with you in a year's time where is it thank you all right Tell me about Bobby Fuller. I've 
I asked Lou Reed about Bobby Fuller. He said, turn the tape recorder off. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Bobby Fuller had a very unfortunate end, didn't he? Uh, Yeah, it's a real mystery, and I don't know uh, probably any more than you do about it. Uh, He was in L.A., and I I only met him a couple of times. They called me one day and invited me to a recording session, and I went down and met all the guys, and... And he seemed like a real nice guy. Was he like Buddy Holly? Uh, uh, not really. Perhaps uh, you could compare him. I, I never really compared him to Buddy. He was, a, he was a little had a little different twist, seemed mm-hmm. to me. And I think he was a fan of Buddy's. You know, of course, he he probably tried to copy Buddy some. Sure. Um, yes. And I thought the law he picked up off of uh, their our record of in style with the yes. crickets. Right. But he uh, he died in front of. Uh, the Sycamore Riviera Apartments, I believe, there in, on Sycamore Street in Hollywood, right behind the Chinese uh, Theater, Grauman's Chinese Theater. I mean, one of his stories about managers and record company people pouring gasoline down his throat and things like that. Right? Well, I've heard those stories too, and I, uh, uh, as I say, you you probably heard the same ones, but they're just rumors to me. Yeah, I think yeah. it was uh, a very mysterious ending. I think the uh, they attributed it to suicide, which doesn't seem like a... It doesn't seem very likely to me. I break in the rocks in the hot sun I fought the law in the law one I fought the law in the law one That was Sonny Curtis in conversation with John Tobler in 1990, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Marshall Crenshaw. Visit marshallcrenshaw.com to join his mailing list. The hosts were Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Oh, that new doctor is dropped at gorgeous. <sighs> Please, he's just another RV League educated surgeon with good hair. No, he's different. Nurses, we got a classy motorhome with a detached driver's side mirror. Meet me in the OR. Stat. Right away, doctor. No, 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 she's on break. I'll handle this one. Oh, you conniving little... When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates covered subject to policy terms.